Good morning everyone and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor, especially if you're visiting this morning. Um, it's lovely to see Justin back with us this morning uh, and we also have Jamie with us who I'm told has a Lark Hall connection, as you'll find out do quite a lot of people uh, in this church. Um, as you know, our Minister Katrina is still away on leave, so we are very grateful to our friend Mo Gibbs for coming to lead our worship this morning. Uh, and Paul Fraser's also away, um, so we welcome another old friend, Bill Keane, uh, to play for us this morning. And I've just spotted Lionel and the children at the back. Welcome uh, to all of you too. Everything that we need to follow the service today is on our printed order of service, including the words of all our hymns. And later on in the service, if any of the younger children need uh, to let off steam, the Kelvin suite opposite on the other side of the corridor is available just to run around. Or if anyone would like to do some colouring, uh, it's available at the back where Lionel and Peter and Sarah are sitting. If you can stay after the service for a cup of tea or coffee, please do that. And there's a particular attraction today. Um, it was Betty's birthday last week and there is birthday cake for everyone. So please make sure you go and you claim your slice and a very happy birthday, Betty, to you. Uh, just a wee reminder that there is no evening service today. Next Sunday at 11am, Katrina will be back leading worship here in the hotel. And the evening service next Sunday at 7pm will be a service of healing in Kelvinside Hillhead Church. These are all our notices. Good morning. Um, it really is good to be back with you guys. Um, Lionel got the chance to say that last week. I get the chance to do that this week. But for you, for you guys, for me, you hold a real special place because you're one of the first churches I ever preached in as a student. Um, and so it's nice, even years later, to still be coming back and getting to see familiar faces and have a chance to chat with people. Um, so thank you for having us. We, we've loved being here. Our call to worship this morning comes from one of the lectionary readings for today. Since the last time I was here, uh, I've needed glasses, and so I also need Lionel's large print Bible now. But it's Psalm 33. And if I read it all to you, it says this. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him with a ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy, for the Lord of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. I love that little phrase. It's beautiful, isn't it? He gathers the waters into the, of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. 
No king is saved by the size of his army. His warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it can't save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfailing love. To deliver them from death and keep them alive from famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. It's a really long psalm, isn't it? But in it, it speaks to the fact that we look for security and others look for security in all kinds of things. And that's some of what we're going to explore this morning. We're going to look at where we put our security. And anything that's not God isn't the right place. And so it's no wonder that the psalmist is able to stay at the start Say at the start, <laughs> sing to the Lord a new song, make music to him, praise him, for he's wonderful, for he creates, for he redeems, for he saves, for he's worthy to be trusted. And so as we gather this morning in worship, that's what we're doing. We're declaring that we trust God, we're declaring that we worship him. And we do that in a, the way we speak, and we do it in how we sing. And so let's continue our worship as we sing together our first song. Okay. 
song. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Lord God, whether we've rushed in this morning or whether we've taken our time, we recognise that in coming to church we still come ill-prepared somehow. You invite us to meet with you. You've created space for us to be together, to have moments that will affect every other moment of the week. You've called us to recall your mercy and your love and your goodness. And so would you help us to stop now as we wonder at the scope of your love and the way that you care for each one of us. Help us to face you, to receive what you want to give and to wonder at your love for us. Lord Jesus, you declared yourself the way, the truth and the life. And so we ask this morning that you would reveal to us your truth. Would you inspire us with your life and with your words, that now and at all times we would find in you the way to the Father. And this morning we come together and we pray as you taught us. Our Father, who is in heaven,
wonder this morning if you have a think back to your childhood, if you had a favourite toy in that time. Did some of you have a favourite toy, maybe? A few of you, a couple of nods. Kids at the back, do you guys have a favourite toy that you like to play with all the time? Sarah, do you have a favourite toy? You do, don't you? Oh, we've, got, we've even got some here. Is that a, um, what's his name from Paw Patrol? Oh, what's his name? Shout it, Chase, thank you. He's a police dog in a kids programme called Paw Patrol. Very good programme if you ever are so inclined. Let me introduce you to my favourite toy, or one of my favourite toys. This is Scratcher. Scratcher is soon to become 33. He's getting on a bit. You'll be pleased to see he's looking relatively white. I was saying to Anne, yeah, he is well used. I was saying to Anne just before the service, um, Sarah found him a couple of months ago and decided that she wanted to start cuddling him. And we looked at him and thought, oh, he's a bit grotty. We should really see if he can wash. So we washed him and I thought, I'm, I may need to be prepared to lose him. And he came out and I'm like, well, that's what your fur looked like when it was white <laughs> instead of the horrible grey colour you've been. Scratcher, though, was given to me on my second birthday. I'm going to bring him up so you can see him. Oh, that's my favourite, that one. Sky. Yeah, Sky's my favourite because she can fly, just in case you didn't know. Look, you're Chase. This one's called Scratcher. And you guys like Scratcher too, don't you? Scratcher was given to me on my second birthday. We were in Jersey as a family, and my mum and dad took me to Jersey Zoo. And I fell in love with a certain group of monkeys, spider monkeys. And so Scratcher is a spider monkey. And for the last 32 years, 33 years nearly, he's followed me wherever I've gone. So on my gap year, he came and lived with me in England. When Lionel and I got married, um, Lionel very astutely thought that there shouldn't be an occasion that he missed out on, so brought him to the wedding and produced him during his speech. <laughs> I have to confess, I was slightly embarrassed, and so Scratcher made a slight slow fall down thing. But actually, it does mean he's been with me on all major occasions, and now actually, my kids love playing with him. Scratcher, for me, is a real treasure, but if you look at him, he doesn't look like a treasure. And I'm sure in most shops, people would pass them over. I asked Anne and Brian this morning if they would bring a treasure of theirs to show us. And so I'm going to ask them to tell me what their treasure is and explain it to us. Um, and just for ease, it's probably best to speak at the microphone, isn't it? Uh, my treasure's a little bit different. Uh, my treasure's only six weeks old, I think. Um, it's a beautiful scarf. I don't know if you can see it at the back, boys and girls. Can you see it's a lovely scarf? It's got butterflies and dragonflies on it. Do you want to come and have a look at it? It's got flowers as well. And it's a beautiful colour. What do you call that colour? Does anybody know what that colour's called? Lavender. Lavender? Yeah, I think it is. Lavender or, or mauve. Do you want to come and see it? Well, this is my treasure, and it's a new treasure because it was given to me as well. It was a gift from a member of this congregation 
who had heard that I wasn't feeling very well. Um, and she said, I'm sending you this scarf because when I don't feel very well, it's really nice just to have a nice soft scarf that you can snuggle into and it makes you feel a bit better. And I just thought that was the loveliest thought. And it, it made it such a precious thing, not just because it's a beautiful scarf, because somebody, some of one of you who heard that I wasn't feeling well, thought, I know what will help, and sent this to me. So this is a new treasure, six weeks old. The, the treasure that I have selected is a bit odd. Um, it's this. We all pass it every week as we come in and out of here. Um, and yes, it's the visitor's book, and many of you will have signed it at some point in the past, sometime, some of you quite recently. Um, but it's more than a visitor's book. It's a story. It's a really story book, this. Um, let me just... I, every now and again, about every six months, I sit down <clears throat> and I look through it, trying to catch something new, because it's a real story book of our congregation and of the life and witness of this community of faith over decades and decades. So, for example... Just under two years ago, it was signed by uh, Eshan and Annas. And a few weeks later, it was signed by Elham and Ali. And we know the circumstances in which our friends <coughs> arrived here. So that's just two years ago. 25 years ago, just a few weeks back, it was signed by David Partain who is here from Sweden today, and by Ruth Partain, who was there from the United States of America because they were here for the wedding of Grace and Will. So that's in, that's in here with comments. It lo people leave lots of comments, but that's the interesting. See what people who are visiting us uh, and only for one day say about us, and it's quite interesting. And then 40 years ago, this past January, it's signed by my dad. Um, I was uh, coming around Hillhead at the time because Anne was here. And <laughs> there, on the 16th of January, 1979, signed by my dad in his writing. My dad has been dead for 30 years, so I like to see his signature. It's really interesting. And it's also interesting to note that when he signed that, he was three years younger than I am now. <laughs> this is a storybook. It's, I commend it to you. Do what I do sometimes. Just look at it and read it. It's a treasure. That is a real treasure. And it's isn't interesting, isn't it? For each of the things, in monetary terms, they're worthless almost. But in terms of value that they hold for us personally or for the congregation as a whole, they're priceless. They're a treasure. And often when we think of treasure, we think of the money value of things. We think of how much something's worth. But when God thinks about treasure, he thinks about it so, so differently. I'm going to move into the middle. It's not going to be possible for you all to see the pictures, beautiful as they are. But I wonder if you guys at the back might want to see some pictures in my book. Do you want to come and sit? There's a nice big space in here that it might be easy for you to see the pictures. You see, we think of treasure and we think of the value of things and God thinks about things differently. 
And there's a parable in the Bible in a book called Matthew that talks about treasure. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible says it. If you've never seen this before, it's an absolutely brilliant, whether you're three, four, five, or 95, it just says things very beautifully. It's worth a look. But this is what it says. I'll show you my pictures. It says, one day, Jesus was telling people about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is wherever God is king, Jesus told them. It's wherever God is in charge. It's where he fills your heart with his forever happiness. And you stop running away from him and you love him. But sometimes people couldn't understand things very well. So Jesus helped them by telling them stories called parables. Jesus said, God's kingdom is like a hidden treasure. And then he told them this story. Once upon a time, there was a man working in a field. He was digging. So there he was digging, but what he didn't know was that in that field was buried treasure. So dig, 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 clink, clank, clunk. Oh, oh. His shovel bumps into something hard. Hello, what's that? He picks it up and dusts it off. It's a chest. He prizes it open. What he sees inside takes his breath away. It's beautiful, gleaming, twinkling, sparkling, precious jewels. It's a treasure chest. He wants the treasure. He needs the treasure. He has to have that treasure somehow, even if he has to sell everything he has. So he buries the treasure again. He runs home. He sells everything he has. And then he takes the money from the sale and goes and buys the field. Now he owns the field and the treasure that's buried inside it. So he runs back and he digs up the treasure again. Jesus said, coming home to God is as wonderful as finding treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might even have to give up everything you have to get it. But being where God is, being in his kingdom, that's more important than anything else in all the world. It's worth anything you have to give up, Jesus told them, because God is the real treasure. Isn't that exciting? God is the treasure. And when we think about treasure, it's worth remembering that. And that's what we're going to think about this morning, about what it means for us to have not treasure and money value, but having our treasure as God and having God's kingdom be the most important thing for us. Shall we pray together? God, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that you call us to be part of it. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to value the right things. Help us to find treasure in you. Thank you that to you, we're like treasure and that you love us and you care for us from the very smallest to the very oldest. Help us to understand that more day by day and week by week. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys can go back to colouring now if you want. <coughs>
the trouble with walking away is you forget what's next. I'm going to guess we're singing. <laughs> yes, that's good. <laughs> Let's sing together. Our Bible reading is Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 40. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. 
of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? you of little faith and do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink and do not keep worrying for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things and your father knows that you need them instead strive for his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure they give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give arms. Make purses for yourself that you do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. We are no thief comes near and no much destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action, and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near down and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour.
this summer for us as a family is the first summer that we've all been off at the same time. So Sarah started school this year, Peter started nursery, and we've had the last six weeks off together. And it feels on one hand like it's totally flown by. Lionel goes back to work next week, the kids are back next Monday. It feels like no time at all. On the other hand, it feels like the summer's dragged on and been <laughs> taken forever. One of the nice things about it has been about how much family time we've been able to spend together. And it's been really nice to see that Sarah and Peter still play with each other like they're the other's best friend. It's really beautiful. However, that said, every now and again, you hear the cry go out from the garden or from the living room. I'm telling mum on you. I'm going to get dad. And you just know what's coming. So they run to whichever one of us happens to be about, usually with the other one hot on their heels. And they tell us some story some squabble or skirmish that they want us to intervene in. And in that moment, what they're looking for is for us to rule, preferably in their favour, while the other one is busy telling us their side of the story. And what they want is for us to vindicate them and preferably give the other one into trouble in the process, because that's always good. And in that moment, even if it's just for a moment, the good relationship that they have is laid aside and what they want is their way and their own way to be the right way. Just before the passage we heard this morning, that's the kind of thing that happens to Jesus. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, a rather large crowd has developed, so much so that people are getting trampled on in the process. And Jesus has been telling them, about what's to come in the time to come, but also about how to live now. And as he's doing this, Jesus, in his very typical Jesus-like way, pulls no punches when he talks about different things. And so he's quite scathing at times in his response to the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are behaving. And then in the midst of this, this voice pipes up. This brother is all he's referred to as. He doesn't even have a name. But he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance between us. Jesus hears that and he responds to it. And actually what the brother that calls out, what he's looking for in that moment is exactly the same kind of thing as Sarah and Peter are looking at when they run to Lionel or I. He's looking for Jesus to vindicate him, to tell him that he's right, to tell his brother off that he's wrong and to tell him what his brother needs to do. And in some ways, that wouldn't have been unusual. It wasn't unusual for people to go to people that were respected rabbis and to ask them for their opinion or their ruling on kind of financial matters and other things. On one hand, the brother, when he calls out, is paying Jesus some respect. He's telling him who he thinks he is. But actually... I think the reality is his motives aren't quite so pure. What he wants is what he feels is his. And things have to have broken down in the relationship that he has with his brother if he's asking Jesus to intervene in it. And so Jesus, when he answers, well, he doesn't actually give them a ruling. What he says to them is almost a calling out of the attitude that's prompted the demand that the brothers made. because. 
that's actually what it is. He's not asking, he's demanding. Who appointed me, Jesus says, to be the judge and the arbitrator between you? And Jesus could just have let it go there, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes on to make an example of what's happening in that moment by telling people to watch out for greed in all its disguises. Because life is more than having an abundance of possessions, Jesus says. And so then he goes on to tell them the parable of the rich fool. A guy who had so much that he realised he didn't have enough space in his barns to store it all. So he decides to knock down the barns and build bigger barns in order to store all this extra that he has. And Jesus ends the parable by saying, and God comes to the man and says... What were you doing? That's worthless. It's meaningless. You've stored up the wrong stuff. And Jesus says to them, this is how it will be with whoever stores up stuff for themselves, but isn't rich towards God. Jesus uses this dispute amongst the brothers to make an important point to those gathered around especially the disciples, he exposes what's going on in their relationship. A relationship clearly broken because each is trying to gain security at the expense of the other half. Each wanted what they felt they were due and was their right. What could buy them security and make them happy? And rather than coming together, this inheritance had divided them completely. And it's difficult to know if the relationship was already broken and therefore they didn't trust each other or whether actually this had broken their relationship and they didn't trust each other. Whichever way around it is, is actually almost unimportant because what's at the heart of the matter for these brothers is a trust issue. They don't trust each other. And if they trusted each other, things could be different and they wouldn't need Jesus to come and arbitrate between them. Joan Chichester is a Benedictine monk and she's um, a kind of internationally known author and lecturer. And Jim Gordon, your friend of mine, um, introduced me to her writings last year. And you know as well as I do that if Jim Gordon says this is a good writer, you go and you follow it, don't you? And I've been reading one of her books recently that's called Between the Day and the Daylight, or Between the Dark and the Daylight. And in it, she writes some really interesting stuff about the mirage that we think is security. And so this is one of the things she says. She says, security, at least in the form of money, is meant to provide us with options in difficult times. And of course it does. But it does other things as well that too often become as much a burden as a blessing. Obsession with financial security can blind us to the joy of the present and block us from from daring a less financially attractive future. I think that was something the brothers were discovering and it's something that Jesus was warning the disciples about. And then we come to the passage that we get this morning, the passage that we read out 
where Jesus is telling the disciples not to worry. On the one hand, it's like a complete break away from what's just happened. But actually, if you look more closely at what Jesus is saying, he's really just continuing the lesson for them. Jesus is trying to tell the disciples that the truth is that security isn't so much a state of being, a state of life, as it is a state of mind. Security doesn't come from storing up more and more things and neither does it come from worrying that you don't have enough. And what he says to them is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus says to them, you know, what does worrying add to your life? And the answer is that it doesn't add anything at all. In fact, it detracts from life. Now, actually, I'm a born worrier. I can't help it almost, as Lionel will tell you. And often, when I try not to worry, I fail more times than I succeed. My immediate reaction when something happens is to think worst case scenario, or what if something goes horribly wrong, or what will people think, or what will people do? And before I know it, before I've even uttered a word to anyone else, I've got myself all tied up in knots inside and I can feel really tense and, oh, please tell me I'm not the only one who has that feeling. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. And when you feel like that, it's really easy to say, you know, don't worry, just let God deal with it. It rolls off the tongue like a bit of a cliche. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. He says explicitly, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. I mean, the ravens, they can't store anything and they have everything they need because God provides. Or look at the lilies, they're here today and gone tomorrow, but God dresses them in splendour. Don't worry, God knows what we need. He'll provide it. I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling like that, just telling me not to worry doesn't actually help. Sometimes that actually makes me worry more. It doesn't always change things. Just saying don't worry doesn't necessarily change the circumstances you find yourself in. And when it's like that, then actually worry seems almost a natural response, the kind of right response to have and so is Jesus just being way too simplistic? Does Jesus just not have a clue what we're experiencing, what life is like? Does he just not know? I'm not an expert. But it seems to me that anxiety and worry are on a real increase within society. And I think sometimes we realise it because it comes in really blatant forms. Like without even thinking about political persuasion, if you think about Brexit and all the worries and concerns around lots of different spheres of life that are going on with that, there's a lot of worry and anxiety and uncertainty. But other times, I think worry is a lot more disguised and subtle. And I think sometimes we find that we're operating a lot of our lives out of worry and concern and we don't even realise it. 
or we don't realise it until it builds up and builds up and builds up. There seems to be lots of talk about people's mental health and I think that's a really good thing. But the fact that we're having to talk about it so much and there's not enough services, I think should point to the way that something in what we're doing isn't helpful, isn't helping us to flourish. And I know that that's not the whole story around mental health. And again, I'm not an expert. But it seems as if worry is such a major focus in life. And it doesn't matter your status, it doesn't matter how much wealth you have, it doesn't matter your gender or your ethnicity. Worry is something we think we have to live with all the time. And then we get a passage like this morning where Jesus is telling his disciples not to worry. And the question becomes, what do we do with that? If we go back to what Jesus had been saying before, though, we can see it's all linked. Because I think sometimes worry and our worries are based around our security, aren't they? It's around, do we have enough? What happens if we don't have enough? Am I enough? Could I be better? Should I be better? Could I be more capable? Should I be doing more? What if the worst happens? Am I prepared? All of it, Joan says at one point, is around how is it possible to tell what is really about security and what is really about our insecurities? It seems as if our quest for security often is revealed by our insecurities. So we end up focusing on ourselves, on what we have, on what we need. And like the brothers, we're unable to see beyond ourselves and the world that we have right now. And actually it becomes about an issue of trust. A bit later when she talks about security, Joan says this. She says there's a fear factor in undue concern for security. Rather than launch out and test and fill the rest of our abilities, we cling to the little that we have. We take security at too great a price. We fail to move beyond what is safe. We abandon our dreams in favour of what is sure rather than strive for what is best for us. Then too late, if at all, we discover that the need for security begins to preclude all other thoughts. It plagues us at night and follows us during the day. We live full of worry that what might well disappear, it will disappear when we're not looking. Security has done its worst. We're now prisoners of our own small designs. And the false freedom that was to come is finally exposed for the hollowness of the promise that it has. And worst of all, sooner or later, we discover the worst thing about security. It's not only bogus, it's actually out of our hands. It's totally dependent on outside influences. Circumstances over which we have no control, never did have any control, and we'll never have any control. I wonder if sometimes in our search for security, what we're actually looking for is to try and be in control. And so when Jesus is telling the disciples not to worry, I don't think he's asking them to forget about life. 
or to not be aware of the circumstances that they're in or to just be reckless or to go blindly about life. I think what he's trying to show them is that that needs to not be their focus, that their focus needs to shift. What he's trying to say to them is instead of just focusing on yourself and what you have, lift that focus and focus on God and trust in that God has all you need. And actually, if we're honest, at times it doesn't look like we want it to. It doesn't feel like we want it to feel. But he's suggesting that at all times, God is working for our good. Even if in the circumstances it doesn't feel like that or seem like that. And within that, he's saying that if your security is in God, then God can be trusted. That trust issue that we have, it can be fulfilled and found in God. And the first step, he says, in not worrying, is to shift the focus from yourself and into God's kingdom first. He says, seek God's kingdom first. And then everything else will be added as well. And it doesn't feel so much like a cliche then. Tom Wright, a really good theologian, says this about God's kingdom. He says, God's kingdom at heart is about God's sovereignty, sweeping the world with love and with power. So that human beings, each made in God's image and each one loved dearly, may relax in the knowledge that God is in control. Isn't that a lovely image? God's love and God's power sweeping the earth so that we can relax into God's care. He goes on to say, reflecting on the birds and the flowers isn't meant to encourage some kind of romantic nature mysticism, but it's to stimulate serious understanding. God, the creator, loves to give good gifts. He loves to give the kingdom. Loves, that is, to bring God's sovereign care and rescue right to your own door. He's saying what Jesus is saying, that God's kingdom is marked by God's care for us. When I was a teenager, verse 32, that seemingly strange little verse in the middle about do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It was one of my best friends at the time. It was one of her favourite verses. And I have to confess, I never understood how she could get so excited about this little verse that if I'm honest, I didn't really understand. Because in my head, what I imagined she was imagining was this lovely serene picture of sheep and a shepherd. You know, like you get on the cards that just make you want to throw up, really. <laughs> Everything is all just saccharine sweet. But the reality was I knew that sheep are actually a bit stupid at times and rather skittish. And so I just didn't get why she could get so excited that that was how she was being described. A few months ago, I was um, driving back from Peebles to Gorebridge, where we live, and you kind of do back roads past farmland. It was late at night, about 10 o'clock at night, so it was getting dark, had my headlights on, and suddenly at the corner of my eye, I saw something move and, and kind of skirmish a bit. So I slowed down, like a good driver, took a look, and it turned out it was a little black lamb on the outside of the field, while all the rest of the sheep and lambs were in the field. And what I can imagine was the lamb's mother, given the loud bleating that was happening. She was on one side of the fence and the lamb was on the road side. And so I wasn't quite sure what to do. I stopped the car, I got out, 
I tried to get close to the lamb and realized that that wasn't going to happen. This lamb was not going to let me anywhere near it. The bleating got louder. It started to get more skittish. It was moving between the verge and the road. What do I do? So I got back in the car, turned the car around, went back to the last place I'd found some houses. Half past 10 at night, start knocking on doors till I find the farmer, eventually, who goes out to deal with the lamb. Thanking me in the process for bothering to stop to find his lamb. It's unusual they get out, but when they do, it's quite dangerous. Well, when we got to the bit that the lamb was out in, I didn't hang around too long. I kind of carried on, but out my rear view mirror, I think I saw him get closer to the lamb than I ever did. Probably because the lamb knew him a little bit better. And now every time I go around that bit of road, I'm looking in the field to see if I can see the sheep, even though she's one of many. But I'm imagining her there. And every time we drive and I see the shepherd or the, the farmer, whoever he is, I want to tip my hat to him because now I have a clue who he is when I pass him. You see, while the disciples weren't shepherds, they would have had an idea of the nature of sheep because there were so many of them around. And so when Jesus is calling them a little flock, their idea isn't this serene picture of sheep all beautifully obeying stuff. They knew too much about sheep. They knew that they could be skittish. They knew they would be easily frightened. They knew they'd need extra direction. They knew that sometimes they would follow the wrong thing that they would need reminded. And yet he also knew, they would also know that sheep were best when they were living around together. They were called to be part of something bigger. And Jesus is saying to them, to folks like this, God has been pleased to give the kingdom. Because God knows what we're like. But isn't it interesting, what hadn't struck me until this week, maybe this is why my friend could get so excited, is God isn't described as a shepherd. In that little verse, the flock's described as sheep, a little flock, but God is described as the father, not the shepherd. Not someone who is distant or remote, but someone who has love and care and who does things not out of a sense of duty or just of work ethic, but out of genuine love and care I'm wanting to help. And so Jesus is saying that worry doesn't need to dominate our thoughts because God's kingdom can. And we might need reminding of that time and time again. But that's okay. Because the Father knows that. And God's kingdom is marked by things like forgiveness and grace and love and care. And it's a kingdom where we don't need to struggle and strive, but where we can relax into the knowledge that the one who flung the stars into space, who holds everything together, is the one that's in control and the one that's working everything together for our good. And so we come to the final little bit of the reading that seems like a really strange tack on that starts with be dressed and ready for service Keep your lamps burning like a servant waiting for their master to come home. Because while in part it's about the kingdom that's to come, it's also about how we live now. And so with our focus off ourselves and off just gaining our own security, 
and unto God and living out the kingdom, then we're free to serve him. We're free to give all that we have. And as we do, I wonder if we just might find ourselves unlike the brothers at the start of the story, part of the care and the concern for other people and part of that bringing the care and love of God's power and love sweeping the earth and bringing that not just to each other's door but to everyone else around us too just like Anne's scarf do not be afraid little flock for the father has been pleased to give you the kingdom let's pray God we recognise that at times things other than your kingdom dominate our thoughts and our actions we recognise that at times worry can detract from our life together rather than add to it and so would you help us to seek your kingdom first Help us in our worry to trust you. Help us to see your care and concern. And would you make us ready to serve you and to serve others in such a way that your kingdom comes more on earth as it is already in heaven. And we pray that that would be true for each and every one of us this morning, in the week ahead, and in the weeks beyond that. Amen. We're going to sing together.
We hear again these words from Luke chapter 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let us pray. God of love, we live in an age of anxiety and we confess that like so many others, we carry with us a sense of vague unease and uncertainty about the future of our family, our church, our nation, our world. We worry about the people and the values that are dear to us and so often we feel that there is nothing that we can do that will change things. But this morning, you both reassure us and challenge us. Do not be afraid, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But that kingdom begins with you. So this morning we pray for our world, beset by the devastating impact of climate change. Floods in South Asia have displaced millions of people in India, Bangladesh and Nepal, while in other parts of our world drought is devastating communities, leading to hunger, conflict and uncertainty. And just this weekend, we hear of the typhoon in China. But Jesus says, do not be afraid, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But that kingdom begins with us. So help us to make better choices about what we eat how we travel, the kind of energy we use. Give us the words that will change people's hearts and minds and habits and make us recklessly generous in our support for those most affected by climate change, the poor and dispossessed of our world. And we pray for our nation, beset by division and anxiety about our future, both economic and political. Everywhere we turn, it seems, we're confronted by rhetoric that threatens to undermine our hard-won democracy. And we worry about our relationships with our nearest neighbours. But Jesus says, do not be afraid, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But that kingdom begins with you. Help us to turn away from the temptation of seeing people as us and them. 
and to insist on our common humanity. Show us how to build bridges of understanding where we can. And we pray for our church. At the moment, so many of our hopes and dreams for the future seem to lie in the hands of others. Planners and counsellors, surveyors and accountants. And it would be so easy to give in to anxiety. But Jesus says, Do not be afraid, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But that kingdom begins with you. Help us to work out together what it means to be a church without a building. For however long or short this time may be. And let this period of exile make us stronger. And draw us closer to one another. And to you so that we would be able to go on serving you together, whatever the future holds. And as we pray for our own church, so we pray for our sister Baptist churches, for the church at Irvine, as they seek to serve people in an area of economic deprivation, for the church on Isla, as they grapple with the unique pressures of island life, and we remember too the churches at Johnston and Kelso as they try to live out the values of your kingdom in their own situations. And finally, we pray for our families, so often the source of our greatest fears and anxieties. We pray for children returning to school or college for elderly relatives becoming increasingly frail and dependent, for family relationships that have become strained or have broken down completely. God of love, you know the challenges that each of our families is facing and you say, do not be afraid, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, but that kingdom begins with you. Help us to entrust the people we love to your care. Show us how to let past hurts go, how to forgive, and how to allow others to forgive us. Until that day when your kingdom comes, and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.
pray together, shall we? God, we recognise that everything we have comes from you. And in giving back this morning, we're just giving you back what is already yours to start with. But Lord, we want to do it with joyfulness and with thankfulness at who you are and all that you mean to us. And we do it too, trusting that you are God and you can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So we pray that you would take the finances that we've given back to you and do immeasurably more than, than seems humanly possible. And God, we pray that it would happen and that you would be glorified. For we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand or um, sit if you need to and sing our last song together.
as we move from being the church gathered to the church scattered this week. Let's pray together the words that are at the end of Psalm 33. It says, We wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen.